You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. Today, I'm the broken vessel that gets to share God's word with you. And God's word is ultimate, perfect. It has words for us. Uh, It's not always a word to us directly, and that's what we're going to see today in Matthew 6. So if you would open up to that, Matthew 6, verses 25 to 34. The section we're reading today, many of you might be familiar, familiar with, is called the Sermon on the Mount. And so up to this point, Jesus has started his ministry preaching, and he's going from town to town to town, and he's preaching to the masses. And the masses come, he becomes famous, and he starts to see these crowds that he's preaching to. And in this specific instance, he sees that the crowd has grown very, very big, and he runs up the mountain. Jesus does this a lot. He seeks solitude up the mountain. However, in this instance, he goes up there, and he preaches a sermon to his disciples. Now, it's an important note that this is his disciples. At the beginning of chapter 6, or sorry, at chapter 5, he actually sits down, um, and he preaches this message, and we call it the Sermon on the Mount. And he teaches them about God's expectations and law. I mean, if there was any passage in scripture where it was, this is exactly how to do things. This would be a great passage for it. This is how to think, how to live, how to pray, who to love, how to love, how not to love. All these good things that you're supposed to do. And so if you're looking for a way to be perfect, uh, you would just go through the Beatitudes. You would go through all of these things and you would do exactly what the Sermon on the Mount says to do. However, that's not exactly Jesus's point. He's not just reading this and saying, you must do this or you're hopeless, but he is intending for there to be a sense of, wow, this is way more than I ever thought. God's law is so much bigger than I'd ever thought. And he does that uh, for one specific intention, is he's undermining the teaching of the religious Pharisees of that time. Matthew is written primarily to a Jewish audience. Matthew was a tax collector and he was a a devout Jew. And so he's teaching against these Pharisees who are doing everything by the book. They're doing everything perfectly and they found themselves righteous. Jesus comes in and he takes it a step further. He says, you have no idea how high and how holy God's law is. There's no measure to it. You can't possibly measure up. He says, thou shall not commit adultery. You can't even look at a woman lustfully without committing adultery and there's a sense of this like really like how am I going to do that you can't you, if even if your eyes wander if, you, if your eye leads you astray pluck it out there's this extreme sense and that's exactly what he intends there's this buildup in Jesus ministry that cannot be missed he's undermining every earthly hope we have so that we can truly understand when we are in times of need he is our total and complete savior He's undermining every single hope that is possible so that at the end of his ministry, we will be well in need of a savior. And so the section before that, he does that pretty well. Uh, We walked through the the passage before, which is verses 19 through 24. Uh, It talks about our treasure and our worth. And Jesus goes after the thing, as he does many times, he goes after the thing that we value the most. And he wants to get rid of anything that's in the way of us loving him. And that's kind of the theme. If there's anything in the way of you loving, and in his case, in loving Jesus so much more than anything else, he's going to take that thing. 
And so Matthew 19, I'm just going to read the first part of what I read you know, quite some time ago. It's, Do not lay up treasures for yourselves on earth, where moth and must destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Neither moth nor rust, rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What he's saying is, he's trying to pry away security that we have in the money of this world. He's trying to pry away at anything that we could have. He's saying, hey, snap out of it. The money that you're seeking security in is moth food. Right? Picture moth food. I don't, the only thing I think of is moth balls. The nastiest thing, they make your hands smell terrible. He's saying your money's not worth it. All right, That big 401k you got is not coming with you to heaven. Right? You got a lot of Bitcoin, it's not going to convert into eternity. He's trying to, he's trying to change your mind and to look to something greater. He does no less than that today. And what our passage is today is speaking to something very, very uh, close to most of us. It's our fears and our anxieties. So for many of us, anxiety is something that we are all too familiar with. It's a friend that's been living rent-free for us for a long time. It doesn't seem to go away. It's that constant tension. It's always there. If, if it was just gone, you could relax and you could enjoy life. Some would say it's a gripping sense of chaos. It's out of control. Others would say it's a feeling of being defeated. You're about to be defeated. If depression is being defeated, you are defeated. Then some would describe anxiety as the process of being defeated, the resistance to that but an uncontrollable one. And Jeff's going to handle slides for me today. <laughs> Here we go. Thanks, Jeff. It's a new building. We're still working through technological kinks. We'll be patient with us with that. The American Psychological Association would describe anxiety as an emotion characterized by feelings of tension, worried thoughts that may include out-of-control thoughts and concerns, the avoidance of certain social situations, the presence of physical symptoms, dizziness, trembling. This is quite the beast. This is quite the problem. Emotional problems, mental aspects of it, a social intrusion, physical characteristics. And so this is the thing, that after Jesus had stole their ultimate hope and gave them something better, he gives them, and he's trying to take away from them, a very, very powerful force in their life. So read with me now, Verses 25, we're going to read through the end of this section. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat and what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And of which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the field, the grass of the field, which is, today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Therefore... Do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, and what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. 
But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So he starts this passage connecting it directly from the one before that. He's, he's, he's connecting the dots. He's saying, therefore, which means he's connecting the thought that was before. He's saying, therefore, since that's true, since your, Trevor's, your, Trevor, since your treasure's not in heaven, you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to be anxious about. Now, it'd be easy for me to stop there and just say, hey, Connection Church, Christian, stop being anxious. All right? Stop it. Jesus says, stop it. So we stop it, okay? Amen. And we're going to close out today, and we're going to go about our lives. And what's going to happen? Because we haven't really hit the cause or the reason. Uh, We haven't really believed something greater. And so he doesn't leave us there, and neither do we. We don't stay there. We don't just say, hey, this passage is about not being anxious, and I'm not supposed to be anxious. It is, but it's so much more than that. There's a lot more to it than that. And so he doesn't want them to just muscle through their anxieties. If he did, that's all he would say. And likewise for us. He wants to dismantle anxiety. And he builds an argument. He builds a rational, logical argument against it. He frames it in light of the power of God as their father, and then he calls them to a greater purpose. And those three things, causing them to have a bigger perspective of their anxieties, of zooming out, and then seeing God Almighty as ultimate and sufficient, looking up to the Lord And then seeing the greater purpose that God has called us is the way that he can deal with that, and that he encourages us to do that. So first, he undermines their anxiety by undermining the eternal significance of their anxiety. So if we look at this, verse 25, uh, if you notice this, he goes after the throat. He goes after food and clothing. Now, this is something that we don't necessarily struggle with. I'm not saying not everybody in this room has never struggled with food and clothing, but as a culture, we're kind of farm-fed Americans, and we got it all together in terms of that, right? Maslow's hierarchy of needs, America is typically on the top, top, top pyramid of self-actualization, right? Where's my purpose? It's important to know that these guys are struggling to eat. They don't know where their meal's going to come from, And I can't imagine, if you told me at lunch, dinner, breakfast, if those meals alone were, you're not going to be able to eat lunch after this, I might have to pray. (laughs) I'd be immediately driven to something bigger because, man, I need that. So this is the bottom of the food chain, social political rejects that are in constant fear that violence could erupt at any moment, and they would be defenseless. The only thing that they can have is food and clothing, And Jesus is undermining not the importance of the food and clothing, but he says, even if you don't have that, your Father in heaven will take care of you. So again, these are huge question marks for these people. Uh, They would be for us too. And I want to hit home at this. We're a culture that freaked out when Walmart ran out of toilet paper. Right? We... Me and, my, me and my friends go to Walmart and we look at the shelves and the lunch meat section was almost empty. The lunch meat, what are we going to do? There's no toilet paper. These guys are just, again, trying to survive. <laughs> they just wanted to eat and not die. There's like, the, the Romans didn't kill us today. What a blessing. There must be a God above. And so Jesus 
undermines the worry of something that is very, very near and dear to them. And he builds an argument to do so. If there was something to be said about Jesus' mental like, abilities and his conversational tactics, it's right here. He uses rhetorical questions. He says, he's asking questions. Is life more than food? He's kind of probing at them. He's like, hey, you're, they're very, very anxious and they're worried. Like, well, if we don't have riches, thank God we have our food. He's like, isn't life more than food? And he's probing them. It's a leading question that's fishing for a positive answer. And he goes, yeah, well, yeah, I guess. Okay, yeah, yeah. Isn't your life, your purpose more than food? Yeah, it is. Okay, okay. And then he leads them down this conversation. Aren't you more valuable than birds? Well, yeah, yeah, of course. I'm, we're more valuable than birds, yeah. Doesn't the grass that gets thrown into an oven, isn't that in all splendor and glory just because God made it? Yeah, okay, right? And he's taking things that are relatively worthless and he's comparing his, their anxieties to that. He says, you've got nothing to worry about. And you're like, okay, Jesus. He's leading them to think critically about their worries. The, the word here is, you know, look. It says, look at the birds in verse 26. Uh, that word in other translations is consider, rationalize, think. And so if anxiety is an emotion that's out of control, sometimes the best solution is to think, consider, rationalize. Don't let it take over. That's not the, the sole solution, but what Jesus is, he's applying logic to their anxieties. And as he compares, he's undermining their eternal significance of even these basic needs. He's putting them into an eternal perspective. He's not saying that food and drink, uh, clothing, they, these are unimportant, right? Jesus doesn't say, food's not important. Stop eating, guys. God takes care of you. He could take care of you. But notice, he's undermining the anxieties of those things. And so if I could summarize what Jesus is encouraging, it's this. Zoom out. He's saying, guys, you're not thinking big enough. Zoom out. In simple terms, if I was to say, anxiety comes from overvaluing things that are not eternally significant. And there's an element here of things that are important, but they're not eternally significant. And so he diminishes the weight of those anxieties by putting them into an eternal perspective. And so do we. As Christians, we are the people who keep our heads when anxiety is high because we know that those anxieties have no bearance on our souls. We know that we're taken care of. Isn't life more than insert thing? That's the question we can ask one another. As you feel anxiety, and as this community of people is around you, you, you bring up your anxieties. You don't ignore the anxieties. There are troubles in this world. But, you, but then we ask one another, hey, isn't life your eternal purpose, right? Life in this context is, is your purpose, your calling, like who you are, your very being. Isn't it more than insert that thing, right? Isn't it more than toilet paper, isn't it more than that? So we just say this. Hey, zoom out. Some of the wisest counsel I've received in the past six months, 
and I've, and I've rationalized, and, and I've done the heady thing because I'm a head case. I like to overthink everything. Somebody just said, hey, man, just, just zoom out. In the grand scheme of things, this isn't all that big of a deal. Now, that is not an invitation to disregard difficult, broken, emotionally challenging situations. Do not hear me. Jesus does not say that. Jesus weeps with those who weep, and so do we. Right? He is not saying that. He actually says in verse 34, at the end of this passage, he says, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And what that means is, today has trouble. He's not saying, there's no worries. Stop worrying because there is none. He's saying, don't let those anxieties control us. And friends, the same goes for us. We will weep with those who weep. We will acknowledge the troubles of this world, but we will not let those situations give control to run our lives. We will remind each other the eternal perspective that Jesus has. Even as hard as this is, we might say to one another, hey, even as hard as this is, even as broken as we feel right now, thank God it has no play on our eternity. Thank God this is temporary. and We've got a bigger hope. Uh, verse 27, I thought this was interesting. He adds another angle to this argument he's building. Verse 27, he's, he talks about, can any of you add a single day to his life by worrying? Again, he's actually playing at achievement, at the need to achieve things. Now, if this doesn't speak to us Americans being productive all the time, I don't know what will. He says, can any of you add? Can you produce anything? Is all this emotional toil doing anything? Let me ask you, is it? Is all of your worry, all of the things that you've been feeling, the, the out-of-control things, can you look back on that and say, man, my worry kept my job. I kept that job because I was so worried about it. That relationship really worked out because I worried and didn't sleep. All right? He's playing at something that I think identifies with us pretty well. He's like, it's not doing you any good. And that's just another angle that he's, that he's doing. So is it, can you look back and say, man, I, I thought about that thing 19 more times and, and now I got it figured out. Like, that's all I needed. I needed 19 times around the track. I needed to talk it out 19 more times and then I had it. He uses birds and flowers for a reason. He's demonstrating the simplicity of peace. And more importantly, He's demonstrating who makes things work. He's building a case for who is the one that makes all of this stuff work. He says, birds, they never, neither reap nor sow. The lilies, they're beautiful. They don't toil and spin. They don't try to make clothing. Yet, who feeds them? Who takes care of them? Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And so the beauty of flowers and the provisions of birds has nothing to do with how hard they strive. If you see something outside that's beautiful, it's not because it tried really hard. It's because God loves them. It's because God created the beauty in and of themselves. God made it beautiful. It has everything to do with who their father is. So in this, as we see this, birds, you know, they don't reap or sow. Lilies, they don't toil. He's not speaking against a lack of effort. That's important. There's lazy, guy, lazy guys like me that would want to say, well, 
God's going to take care of it, and I take license to just do whatever I want all the time, and I don't have to toil, I don't have to spin, I don't have to do any of that stuff. He's not speaking to a lack of effort. Birds still flap their wings and build nests. You go outside and you see it, they're flying, they're, they're physically doing something. This is not an encouragement to be lazy, but there is all the difference in the world between doing things in anxiety and in anxious distrust and doing it in trust of a loving father. In moments of anxiety, we remember who our father is. <laughs> in 1994, one of the greatest movies of all time was released. Some of you know what's coming. Some of you know what's coming. In 1994, I was three, maybe four. I used to jump on the couches pretending to be this. The greatest movie of all time was released. It's dramatic. There's murder, there's scandal, there's family controversy. Some of you guys are getting this, and there's redemption. Man, isn't that a good movie? I'm talking about The Lion King. <laughs> now, some of you guys are really excited right now, and the ones who aren't, you can kind of get out. <laughs> I'm a fan of the movie. But there's this scene that's important. There's a scene that's, it's actually like, it's the pinnacle of the movie, where Simba goes astray, he, he thinks he's, he's messed his life up, and he runs away, and he basically pulls a prodigal son, and he drinks his life away, Hakuna Matata, he starts eating bugs. I mean, he's, he's, he's really messing it up, right? And <laughs> this is to note, a woman, the she-lion, comes up and says, you're better than that. You're not remembering who you are. You're, have you forgotten who you are? And then he gets all frustrated because, frankly, that's, that's what happens when somebody stirs what's true in us that we're trying to avoid. We're going to get frustrated with it. Anyway, there's this scene where he, he goes out and he gets, he gets around uh, this giant field and he's trying to find his purpose. And frankly, he's anxious because he's rubbing up against his actual purpose. And, and the monkey, of course, hits him on the head. All these unimportant scenes. The point the point that I find interesting is that in the end, there's this grand scene where Mufasa comes out of the sky and he says, remember who you are. Remember who you are. And, it, and it's interesting as you think about that. Now, in this case, the deadline in the sky, not exactly the purpose that we're supposed to pull from that. However, Simba's, Simba's purpose was found in who his father was. And that made sense to him of who he was. And he couldn't run away with it as long as he remembered who his father was. And so in the same sense, as silly as an example as I just used, right? Maybe you like the movie, maybe you don't like the movie. My point is not to get you to like the movie, although I think I could do it if I really wanted to. The point is that Jesus does nothing less in this passage. Jesus is saying Remember, in one word, remember who you are. You are a child of God, and you're forgetting that. You're playing Hakuna, Hakuna Matata, and it's driving you nuts, all right? You've got tons of anxieties because you're frilling around with bugs in a log. He's saying, remember who you are. More importantly, remember who your father is. In moments of anxiety, we remember who our father is. Who takes care of us? He made you. 
He's the one that cares for your needs. He's the one that clothes you. He's the one that makes the sun come up. He's the one that makes the heat of the day. He's the one that gave us this building. He's the one that does all these amazing things. Will he not care for the thing that you're feeling anxious of? Will he not take care of his children? In the words of our brother Aaron Strait, he's got you. It's simple. He got you. And that means we can relax. Our heavenly father, the terminology used here is heavenly father. This is not a heavenly Lord over you who makes you insert the thing that, you know, God, that is true of God. Like he is our heavenly Lord, but the, but the text does not use this language. Jesus uses the language of a loving father, the God of the universe that holds the universe in his hand, who sustains your every breath. He's the one who builds his church. He's the one who's really in control. And because God is in control, we don't have to be. That hits on something that's true of anxiety. Kind of the root of what it usually gets at. Anxiety comes from a desire and a need for control. We don't believe that God has control. Many of us don't acknowledge that there is a God on a weekly basis. I'd be guilty of that myself. And so because we don't believe that God has control, we have to take it. We've got to take control, and then when we do that, when we take something that's meant for God Almighty, the thing that only he can wield, which is control of the universe, and we try to grab a hold of that ourselves, of course you're going to get chaos. Of course you're going to feel anxiety. You just grabbed onto a roller coaster that's going full speed. All right? That's not going to work. It makes sense if you're trying to do something that only God has the power to do. And when we do that, we're going to feel insane. You're going to feel a lot of anxiety. And hasn't the past year felt like that? Hasn't the past year, 2020, whatever calendar year, whatever, whatever anxious period that the world started really going insane, isn't that what's underneath of this? Everyone feels like everything's out of control, because it is. So everyone tries to take control. And when everyone tries to take control, they start going at each other's throats, they start questioning all of their relationships, all of the powers that be. And so in your life and in mine, in 2020, in elections, here's the big thing that if I could just say one thing that hopefully could undermine anything that we would walk out of here with, it's the big domino that if this domino falls, all the dominoes are going to fall this week. I promise you, if you listen to this, all the dominoes will fall. And it's not just that God's in control, it's that God's been in control this entire time. In your life, in mine, this past year, in elections, in wars, in strife, in scandal, God has been in control this entire time. In the deepest moments of insecurity, those times that seem to be out of control, we would do well to remember not just that he's in control, but the steps leading up to it, he's in control of that too. And the steps after it, he's been in control. Anything else, friends, is an illusion. Don't listen to that. 
It's not that we lost control and now we got to get it back. Okay, the problem isn't that you had control and then lost it. The thought that is incorrect in our minds is believing we ever had it to begin with. And so we're not going through our week letting God take the wheel. He's already got it. He's had it the whole time. He's been in control. And that's the best news in the planet. The absolute best news in the planet is that I don't have control. Is that we don't have control. Specifically, if I had control, any number of things. Like, I'm, I'm a whiteboard guy. Man, I would draw out the things that would be true, and it would be a train wreck. But thank God I'm not in control. Thank God we're not in control. And the biggest good news for us is that he's not only in control, but he's good. We can read this in 1 Peter 5. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time, what? He may exalt you. He means to exalt those who are humble. He has good for you. Casting what? All your anxieties on him because he cares for you. We don't just have a God that has control. We have a God who loves us. We have a God who is good. Notice the language in here. This language in this passage is not, and Jesus cares for his children. Jesus cares for his disciples. He cares for you. He said, does your heavenly father not care for you? He's speaking directly to his disciples. There's a personal element to this, guys. He cares for you. As Christians and as disciples, we are the ones that God loves, showers blessing upon, feeds us. And so you're not somebody's, like, he's not somebody's father. You're not somebody's child. You are a child of God. You're greater than grass. You're greater than birds. And so trying to do any better than God's control is going to drive you insane. Alistair Begg says it this way. He's a Scottish-accented preacher. I'm not going to do him any injustice today by trying to intimidate him, or intimidate, impersonate him. I wouldn't try to intimidate him either. I think he could take me. He says this, Anxiety is trying to care for myself what only God can do. It's, it's taking care of things that, that I'm trying to do myself, and it's things that only he could do in the first place. It's making something that's up to God and trying to make it up to me, and it's laying it on my shoulders. The best biblical example we have of this is Mary and Martha in Luke 10. Some of you that are familiar with, uh, with the passage, with Luke 10, uh, Jesus goes into this house, and Mary and Martha are the two characters in the story. And so there's, there's Martha, and Martha's scurrying around the house, and she's got to get everything ready, right? Picture like Thanksgiving Day. It's just a big deal, okay? Jesus is in our house, and she's trying to get everything ready, and she's trying to do all the tasks by herself. And then there's Mary. And Mary is the one who is sitting at Jesus' feet, intently listening on Jesus, and she's doing nothing else. And that kind of that gets on Martha, right? That gets, she's, she's trying to get stuff done. If you've ever thrown a party and your spouse or your friends or the, the roommates that said they would help, you know, they're not doing anything, right? She says, Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are very worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. Indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better and will not, it will not be taken away from her. And what he's saying is, when Martha said, Jesus, 
aren't you going to tell Mary to do something? He said, absolutely not. Mary's got it right. Mary's at peace. Martha's anxious. And you can see a picture of anxiety here that we have in Martha. It's not just that she's thinking of everything and she's not thinking rationally. She's divided. Martha has a divided mind. She's distracted. It's an eternal distraction. Whatever the things that were going on that were distracting her, that's the cause of her anxiety. She was divided in mind, and so she wasn't able to focus. She's like, I got to do it, I got to do it, I got to do it. She's probably causing anxiety to everybody around her. She's, she's the one at the Super Bowl party, me, that's like, okay, I got to get chips, we got to clean, we got to clean. I can't talk right now, I got to clean this chip bowl. Just the, the simplest things is distracting her. Contrast that to Mary, who's sitting at the feet of Jesus. She knows who's in control. She's at peace because she's focused. She has focus. And so the opposite of anxiety that we see here is not control. We, we can see someone trying to control. The opposite of anxiety is single-mindedness. It's having one-track mind for what really matters. And we see that when you have this, you have peace. Because peace is confidence in God's control of your life. What I would say is that if you focus on that, focus. Notice this is big words here, guys. Simple words. Focus. Your mind might be divided. Be less like Martha, right? Don't be a Martha. Be a Mary and focus. We'll say this one more time. Peace is what Mary has. And peace is confidence, utter confidence, down deep confidence in God's control of your life. Today's example is a flower. It has no control over anything. It's a flower. It has no anxieties. It, doesn't, it didn't design itself. It didn't design its circumstances. It doesn't design the weather. Yet it beautifully functions exactly the way that it's designed. Because it's in perfect submission to the way God made it to be. It's not trying to do other things other than its one purpose. And so I'm going to ask you guys, how much are you trying to do? How hard are you working right now to earn peace? How much effort are you exerting to rid yourself of anxiety? What are the thoughts that go through your head? What's the thing? What's the, what's the one thing that you need to do? What's the task you have, the project you need to finish, the conversation that you need to have with this person, the relationship that needs to be mended? What's the thing that if just that thing would happen, everything would be at peace? And what we see here is that in a picture of anxiety, it's probably not doing more that's going to fix it. It's in doing less. And so for some of us, I never thought I would say this to people. Some of us just need to be a flower. Be like a flower. Just be. Seriously, just be. Be still. Be God's child. Be content being a child of God. Do you find yourself being divided, anxious of mind? Stop being a Martha. Focus on Christ. Stop. Cease. 
Remember who your, who your father is. Again, focus. We're divided here. And what does Jesus say happens when you focus? In verse 33, he has the passage that a lot of us are familiar with. He says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Seek first the kingdom. We see that when we submit our lives to Jesus and his eternal purposes, he cares for all of our needs. What happens when you focus on Christ? He gives you what you need. A couple important literary things here. Uh, as we read this passage, I'm sure you've seen this. It's, it may be on some coffee cups or some wall art. Uh, it may be something that you've heard your entire life. Uh, it's a little bit more extreme than you might think. I cannot do this passage justice today. I think a whole sermon could be preached just on this one section, just that one verse, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. There's a couple literary elements that are important here. To understand this really, really most, most powerfully, is it's seek first the kingdom. Seek is not just have it in mind. Seek is this pursuit. It's an active discovery. You're actually going to find, like, like seek. It's, it's, it's try to, 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 to throw your weight into the kingdom of God. It says seek first. First being, not seek first today and then tomorrow. It's your first and best efforts. Seek first. Pursue with your first and best efforts the kingdom of God. The next word that we note here, the kingdom of God. Kingdom means what? There's a ruler. There's an inherent submission that takes place when we talk about the kingdom of God. And it's not always just, well, I'm going to seek the kingdom of God. I'm going to read my Bible and I'm going to pray. It's actually a submission to his purposes and his kingdom. So seeking first the kingdom means submitting with your first and best efforts the kingdom and his purposes. And all these things will be added unto you. We also see that if you look at the context of what Jesus is preaching before this, again, this is a message to his disciples, he's talking about their needs. And he leads up in talking about their needs with seek first the kingdom, and then these things will be added to you. These things being their basic necessities in proof that they don't have to be anxious. This is not a prosperity message. That's really important right now. Because if anybody utters this verse, and says, seek first the kingdom and you will be granted all of your desires. They are lying to you. That's not what this passage says. It's not a promise of prosperity, more so a call to commitment and a promise of provision. He promises that he's going to take care of us. He promises that if you give him your ultimate commitment, your ultimate needs will be satisfied. Anything else is a blessing. Anything else that we get is a blessing. We can see when God becomes your purpose, he becomes your supply. When he really, really becomes your purpose, when this kingdom is the most important thing, he becomes your supply. And if you're supplied, if you're supplied with your basic needs, we need not be anxious. This has been a timely word for me right now. This is <clears throat> preparing this passage amidst this time, uh, which is the busiest season of the year for me. And, and so for this, I chose this passage kind of selfishly. I chose this passage for me. <laughs> I hope you forgive me for that. There's some warfare that exists 
uh, between feeling anxious and my own schedule most weeks. Uh, all the responsibilities that I take on and, and all the things that I got to do and the people I got to impress. I'm an approval junkie. Uh, but this time of year, as many of you know, I run a fireworks business. And uh, all that means is uh, for nine days, we sell people fireworks. And I know that you guys have fireworks stories. Uh, Joe Dirt quotes, I get you. Husker dudes, Husker don'ts. I've never seen the movie. I've heard the quotes from all of you guys 20 times. But this time of year is very, very busy for me. And, and contrary to popular belief, uh, fireworks stores don't make a million dollars and then retire the rest of the year. Uh, there's a lot of work to be done, but there's also things to, like, work to be done outside of that season and all those sort of things. That's, that's not an excuse. I don't work any harder than any of you guys. Uh, but this time of year is when I need to hear this. Not because I'm busier, not because I'm more important. I need to preach this to myself. And preparing this sermon has been warfare. Right? It's felt like rowing a boat up Tut Hill. Right? The best sledding hill in Sioux Falls probably would make the worst hill to row a boat up. And that's what it's felt like. This spiritual warfare of me thinking, 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 like I got to do this. I got to get this business ready. I'm actually helping this other business do this thing. I've had family in town for the past two weeks, uh, and we've, we've been to, went to a wedding, a wedding in Vegas, right? I've, I've never been there before. There's all these lights, taking care of relationships that are important to me. All these things are good things. Don't feel sorry for me. This is not a call to pity. However, this is a call for this specific period for me to really believe, hey, this matters. This is what's really important. And I have to tell you, brothers and sisters, I've been distracted. I make a liar out of myself if I say, guys, be more like me. That's not the, that's not the case. I've been over-caffeinated. <laughs> I've been under-rested. It's nobody's fault but myself. And all I can think about are the things that I have to do. And God is just sitting here. He's tugging at my idols. He's tugging at them. And I think if we see this correctly, he's tugging at all of ours. In moments of anxiety, he just says, what are you caring about? What do you really value? What's really important? The 4th of July, America's birthday, it's a little dinky fireworks store. It really doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. Zoom out. For the next month, you guys need to be like, hey, Andy, how are you doing? Zoom out, right? Remember. Focus. Remember who your father is. So what's your anxiety? Some of you might say, I'm really not an anxious person. I, I actually, I don't have any other anxieties. I don't have many anxieties, actually. I'm not an anxious person. Well, in the words of Dr. Eric Lohman, show me someone who doesn't have any anxiety, and I will show you someone who's lying. There's all sorts of types of anxiety. For me, it's kind of a physical one. You're going to see me like this. I'm just anxious all the time. I, got it, like, I feel confident. I feel good, but I'm just physically not there. And any of you that see me in my busy times, I'm just, I'm just physically, I need to go for a run. And then you go for a run, that doesn't fix it. But we all have anxieties. And I ask you again, what's that task you got to get done? What's the project that just needs to get finished? What's the thing that you're trying to control right now? Who's the person you're trying to change? What's the conversation that you need to have for you to have peace? That thing is likely distracting you from experiencing the love and provision of the Lord. 
Maybe for you that's anxious of influence, not having influence, somebody you like not having influence, somebody you don't like having influence, having control. Listen, God has control. He's been in control this whole time. Maybe you're anxious about how chaotic and out of routine things have been this past year. Your father loves you and is going to provide for you. All right, your routine is not where your security was found. Maybe you're like me and routine makes you really anxious and you really hate it and you're afraid that life's going to get mundane. Well, trust in the past sermon series we just went through in Psalm 119. Trust that God is maturing you and is shaping you into somebody far more impactful than the wanderlusting version of yourself that wants to live and run away all the time and get out of routine. Maybe you're anxious about love, emotions, relationships. Will I ever find somebody who truly knows me, understands me, and who sacrifices for me? Your heavenly Father loves you more than any broken possibly could, broken person possibly could. Or as we remember this, like the love that we have in Christ is more than anyone could ever give you. And maybe you're anxious about injustice. Maybe injustice is something that's very personal to you. Maybe you've been wronged. Maybe you've been hurting for a long time because someone did something wrong to you and you didn't deserve it. In that moment, you did nothing to have that thing happen to you. And rightfully so, in your heart, you're crying for justice. You want someone to do something and it's been anxious ever since. And again, I hurt for any of that and I hurt for you. But guess what? We know that God is a God of justice. We know that he is a person who does not take lightly our pains and things done against us. He takes care of us. And how do we know that that's true? Because the guy giving this sermon to his disciples is an example of justice being served. He's a person that has empathy for the things that they were going through. He was a person who was struggling with hunger. He was a person that was out in the desert. He understood the problems. He understood the anxieties. You see, he was empathetic to all of those things, but he's the guy that didn't let it stop him from his ultimate mission, which was ultimate spiritual justice for you and for me. He did not stop it from getting in the way. He didn't let his anxieties, although anxieties came. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he had worry. He said that sweat dripped like blood. He was so nervous for what was about to happen. But Jesus Christ didn't stop there. And he didn't just say, stop being nervous. What does he say to himself? He says, Father, Father, let's do this task. And in so doing, some of the deepest injustice that's happened in the planet, namely against God, but also all injustice that has been done is made right in Christ. And we are given a hope for that. We are given eternal hope. And so Jesus wants us not just to, to fall away from this. He wants us to see the good news of what he has done for us. He wants us to see that there's so much more than just the things that we would worry about. And so we would pray today that that would be true for us. That would be true as a congregation. We'd be people marked by people with an eternal perspective. That we would be people marked by people who look up to their father. And more importantly, we would be people who see God's mission as too important to let other things get in the way. Well, pray for me. 
God, thank you so much for what you've done for us. Thank you for giving us a hope, a peace. Thank you for giving us something to look towards for hope. We ask now that this would not be uh, just a message, that this would be something that we hear for an hour and we go to lunch. This would be something that pierces our hearts and our minds. We ask that you would be with those today that have experienced deep pain. Would you comfort them in your, in your love and in your care for them? Would you give them confidence knowing that there is nothing in this world that you can't do and there's nothing in this world that you don't care for personally? Would you prove to us now, be our God and our provision. We thank you for doing this. We ask that throughout this week, that we would, we would see bigger things, that we would zoom out, that we would encourage one another uh, to see your glory as ultimate, uh, to see your kingdom as something that's worth pursuing. Help us do this in Jesus' name. Amen.